Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and I've probably said this a time or two. I love being here with all of you. I don't think you understand just how beautiful your faces are when you study the Word of God. I get to see it from here, and it is amazing to me. I think it's better than any spa day because it makes us glow from the inside out. It changes us. And I know studying First John has been a wonderful reminder for me, and I hope all of you, just how lavishly you are loved by your heavenly Father. Lavishly loved. And as we maneuver through this world of uncertainties, goodness, if you've watched the news at all, just in the last two hours, there's so much uncertainty. We can hang on to one certain thing, and that's that our heavenly Father loves us lavishly, lavishly. You know, in 1789, Ben Franklin said this. He said, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Now, while I think he's right, I'm also certain at this fact that as a follower of Christ, I only really fear one of those things. That would be taxes, and that's not even a fear. It's more of an annoyance. Don't you feel like you just finished pulling all that stuff out and getting it in, and it's time to do it again? It's almost time, and why do I wait every year to the last second? But see, I don't have to fear death anymore because I'm certain of so many different things. You know, over the years, I've learned to be certain of some things, especially if you know my story of this year, I can be certain of a few things. If it can go wrong, it probably will go wrong. Plan accordingly. You can be certain of that. I've learned that this year. And you know what? You can be certain of this. While you're making those plans, you better spend some time and effort on plan Z because there's another really good chance you're going to end up there. And here's just a little side note on that. Plan, work on being flexible. Because you know what? When you get to plan Z, if you aren't flexible, you're going to miss all the blessings that are there. Plan Z is filled with blessings. I've learned that this year too. You know, another thing I'm certain of is that when you travel with four kids and two dogs, it is not a vacation. <laughs> it's a trip. And if you start out your travels knowing that, your expectations will be where they need to be. You'll have a great time. And I can be certain of this. That advice that we maybe have given or heard so many times, follow your heart, that only plays out well in Hallmark movies. <laughs> I am quite certain of that. Please, please, ladies, don't follow your heart. It's going to take you places you never wanted to even walk into. Follow Jesus instead. And for, all, for goodness sakes, don't advise other people to follow their hearts. Point them to Jesus. That's who their hearts were made to follow. Follow Jesus. You know, as followers of Christ, we can be assured of many spiritual truths recorded. Things that are ours, we can be certain of if we are in Christ. The Apostle John knew this, and in fact, he uses the word know, K-N-O-W, 39 times in his five chapters in, in John. Eight of them is right here in the last chapter, chapter five. So I think it's safe to say that John knew some things we could be certain of for the early church and us today. And in this closing chapter of 1 John, we find like six different certainties. And Amy addressed one of those last week. She talked about that the certainty that Jesus is God. 
you remember that? We went over and over, and she said that, that we had three witnesses to Jesus. There was the water, the blood, and the spirit, and they had one divine source, and that was, that was the Heavenly Father, the same source. And so last week, we learned one of those six, and that is that Jesus is God. This week, we looked at a few more in these nine short verses. And in fact, in these nine short verses, there are five additional ones that I could see. So I want you to open your Bibles, because the first one we're gonna find is in verse 13. And as you're turning there, I want you to notice that the beginning of this section is entitled, That You May Know. See, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that we're gonna learn something we can be certain of here. That's our first clue. John said it straight out. So follow along, I'm gonna read verse 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now remember, this is a letter. And sometimes I forget that when I'm reading scripture. You know, I, I read it and I'm just thinking this is just a, kind of a chapter of the book, of the Bible. It's a letter. John is writing a letter. And just like in 1 John 1, 4, he moves from the greeting into the body of the letter. Verse 13 is kind of this transitional movement from the body of the letter, and now he's starting to close his letter. And he begins to close his letter. He's reminding the early Christians of the purpose of the letter, and that was to reassure them that they were right to believe in Jesus. He's saying, he's encouraging, he's saying, continue in the faith. You were right to put your faith in him. Because see, they were being presented with this false doctrine about the nature of Jesus, and, and there were false teachers in the church, out of the church, trying to sway their thoughts on who Jesus was. And one of the most common truths with being attacked was that, God, that Jesus was fully man and fully God. That is the reason John spends so much time telling us about the nature of Jesus. So John says in verse 13 that those of us who believe in the name of the Son of God can be assured that we have eternal life. Now, when John says that those that believe in the name of the Son of God, that's Jesus, of course, right? He's not just saying that you believe Jesus. You believe that Jesus existed. He walked on the earth. He was a really great teacher. He, he was very impactful in his ministry. It's so much more than that. He's saying that when you believe in the name of Jesus, you're saying you believe everything about who he is, his reputation, everything the Bible records about him not just picking and choosing things you want to believe about Jesus, but everything about him. And one of the most foundational truths about Jesus is that he's God. That's where it all starts. If you can't rest on that, then you can't believe anything else. John spends so much time on this. Look what Jesus says in John 10, 30 on your verse sheet. He's affirming his, own de his deity. He says, I and the Father are one. Those six words make it crystal clear that Jesus is God. Now, the Bible also says that he was sinless and he has authority to forgive sins. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 on your verse sheet, verse 21 on your verse sheet. It's Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and he says, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we would become the righteousness of, of God. And then look at the next one down. It says, it's Matthew 9, 5, and 6. This one talks about his authority to forgive sins. He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said then to the paralytic, 
rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So not only does it tell us that Jesus can forgive sins, we also see one other thing that we have to believe if we believe in the name of the Son of God. It's recorded in all the Gospels. He did miracles. He performed miracles. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus performed miracles. And not only was he fully God, he was fully man. Fully man. And as, a fully, as being fully man, we're saying that he was born as a child, he was born to a woman. He wept. He grew tired. He got hungry. He was thirsty. He knew temptation. And he died. And in addition to that being fully God, he was born of a virgin by divine conception. He says he wrote, it says he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert for the spring study. He's coming back. There it is. I read the end of the book. I read all of my books at the very end first. Then I can relax and just read everything else. I don't have to worry about it. So you don't have to either. He's coming back. You can hang your hat on that one. That should just make you so excited for the spring study. And John says that if you believe all of this, you have eternal life. And guess what? Eternal life doesn't start after you pass from this world to the next. Eternal life comes right away. When you say yes to Jesus, you die to your old self, and you begin to live in Christ. That's when eternal life starts. You're living it right now. Although it's not fully manifested, and we got the evil one prowling around, and we've got this sinful body to deal with, it's, it's our present hope, not just our future hope. See, eternal life is, is not just something we hope for, it's something we're living. Look at John 5, 24 on your verse sheet. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And look at John 6, 47, right below that. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. See, it doesn't say if you believe you will one day after you died and go on, have eternal life. It says you have it. We need to live like we have it. It should show on our faces and in our lives every single day. Let's continue. I'm going to read uh, 1 John 5, uh, verse 14. And we're going to read the next four verses to find the next assurance we have. It says, And this is a confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that he has asked of, of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he, ask, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sin that does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We see the second of our blessed assurances right here, and that is if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. Now, there's a key phrase in there. It says, when we ask according to his will. It's not like God is some divine vending machine that you can just drop a few coins of prayer into or obedience and out pops your wish or your prayer request. Thank goodness. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm really glad some of the prayers I prayed for over the years weren't answered, or at least not answered in the way I wanted them to be answered. And I bet you can say the same thing. I, there's not just a handful of those for me. There are probably buckets of those, those prayers. 
Prayers that I thought I knew exactly what I wanted. See, when we pray according to our will and not according to his will, we take the, or we try, we really don't, but we think we take the control out of God's hands. And we put it in our hands. It's like we're saying, I'm gonna talk to you about this, but I've already made up my mind. I just wanna run it by you real quick before I execute my plan. I can tell you from past experience, that never plays out quite like you hope it will. I know it hasn't for me, but let's be honest. I, I, we don't know what we need. We know what we want, but we don't really know what we need. But you know what? Our Heavenly Father knows what we need. He certainly knows what we need. Prayer is not the way we get God to give us what we want. Prayer is a means that God uses to give us what he knows we need. And it's also a means for him to display his glory as he answers those prayers in his will. Look at Psalm 115.1 in your verse sheet. This has become my new favorite verse in the Bible. I love this. I want to apply this to everything in my life. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your forgiveness or your faithfulness. See, as Christians, our number one priority in life is to live a life that glorifies God in everything we say and every single thing we do. And, and since prayer is part of what we do, that means this applies to our prayer life as well. See, when we apply Psalm 115.1 to our prayer life, we're saying this. We're saying, you know what? It's not about us, God. It's about you. It's about your great and holy name being honored. It's not about us. And Jesus is very specific when he's teaching us how to pray. We all know this sample prayer that's listed in Matthew 6. Look at it on your verse sheet. You could probably say it along with me. He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our, debtor, our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's the Lord's Prayer. A lot of you learned that as a little kid. I know I did. It's one of the most recognizable portions of Scripture right up there with the Ten Commandments, the 23rd Psalm, and, and John 3.16. And because we've said it so many times, a lot of times we just kind of say it. We don't really think about it. But did you notice this? In Jesus' instructive prayer to us, he's saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. Guess what he didn't lead with? He didn't say, our Father in heaven, give us our daily bread. That's way down the list, right? The first thing he talked about was, I want your name to be hallowed. I want it to be exalted. See, sometimes we repeat these words mindlessly, and sometimes we repeat them mindlessly, and we don't even know what we're saying. We don't even know what it means. I know as a little kid, I was, what is hallowed? What does that mean? You know, the word hallowed comes from the old English word, which means in modern times is the familiar word holy. And, and if you look it up in the Webster, Merriam-Webster says to be holy is to be exalted, worthy of complete devotion as one in perfect goodness and righteousness. It's hard to think of the word holy without thinking of the word whole, like the W-H-O-L-E, and when you think of those two together, you realize that being holy means to be completely whole, completely perfect, in need of nothing. So when we say the Lord's Prayer, if we say and we pray, hallowed be your name, we're saying it's not about us. 
or what we want. It's about you and your holy name being exalted. That's what it means to pray according to his will. How do we do that? I had you work on that this week. I hope you did that in your questions. You have to practice it. It's not easy to do that. We're, we want to jump in and say, you know, right away, give us our daily bread. That's our nature. So when you practice it, you, you, you pray, you study God's word. What is your will for me, God? And when you start to know God's word, you start to know his will. And when you start to know his will, you start obeying his will. And when you obey God's will, you start to pray according to God's will. And when you pray according to God's will, you begin to desire the things that your heavenly father desires. And then guess what? Then your heavenly father delights in giving you the desires of your heart. Because now, the desires of his heart have become the desires of your heart. Prayer is about asking God to align your will with his will, not asking him to align his with yours. If you wanna be more effective in your prayer, you have to learn to pray according to God's will. Ask him and ask him to give his name the glory. Ask him to exalt his name. Show your stuff. And whatever you choose to answer my prayer, show your great name. Praying like this is not for the faint of heart. It's gonna require you to pray with trust that he is who he says he is. It's gonna pray, he's gonna require you to pray with trust that says he, you trust he loves you unconditionally and that you trust he has the, the best things for you. He desires the very best for you. That is the only way you can pray according to God's will completely. Now the next two verses recorded in 1 John 5, verse 16 and 17, have caused a great deal of discussion over the years. And before we dive into them, I think there's one thing we can be assured of for sure here, that we're commanded to pray for fellow believers when they're caught in a pattern of sin. We should do that. That happens. They may slide into a pattern of sin that they don't even recognize. And, and we talked about this week in our questions how we can pray for them. And we know that he's making that assertion because he makes it very clear. He says, you shall. He says that in verse 16, the very first part. And then he proceeds to record one of the most debated pieces of scripture in the Bible. And let me tell you, they have chased their tails on this one. Now, although there was all this discussion, there really boils down to just two major thoughts here. Well, okay, well, maybe three. The third one didn't even seem logical, but this is it. It said that John is only talking about unbelievers. And, and I just don't, I, I didn't believe that. It didn't sound right to me. He's talking about brothers. He says brothers. And any other time in his letter when he uses the word brothers or he's speaking, he's talking about fellow believers. So I tend to believe he's thinking about fellow believers. And, and a lot of the, the theologians, the commentaries said that. The other two views agree on one thing. They agree that he's talking about fellow believers, the other two camps, but they debate this. They debate the type of death that John is talking about. Now, one camp says that John is talking about a spiritual death. But that argument comes from those that believe that you can lose your salvation. And for me, that stands in, in stark contrast to what verse 13 says, and that John tells us, where if you believe in the name of the Son of God, you can be confident that you have eternal life. So, most likely, John is talking about a physical death. 
physical death. Now, one of the things that seems to trip up the theologians is this phrase. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin. See, it makes it sound like there is a specific sin that just causes swift death. And I don't think that's true. See, here's the deal. In, it's supposedly in the Greek language, there is no formal word for the, the word a. So if you were translating it the right way, or more correctly, it would sound like if you, anyone sees his brother committing sin, which implies there's no specific sin that causes to swift death. So, may, so I seem to believe that sometimes a Christian may sin so severely that God just judges that particular sin, whatever it is, with swift physical death. I know. I mean, it sounds harsh. It sounds harsh, but we do know this. We know that God is all-knowing. He is perfect. He is loving. He is just. And I can't think of anybody else in a better position to judge our sin than him. I think he's gonna do it right. We find an example of this type of swift judgment in Acts 5, if you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's kind of where, that's kind of what happened there. Long story short, Ananias and Sapphira had sold some property and they're gonna give some of the proceeds to the church. They weren't required to. They just decided they would do that. But here's where the sin comes in, where it came in. They go to the church and they offer this, the proceeds a portion of it to the church officials. And when they do that, they tell the church officials, I'm giving, we're giving you all the proceeds from our sale. When they weren't, they were withholding some of it. They had agreed on amount they would give. And so they lied to the church officials. And it's confusing why, maybe it was to elevate their position in the church or their reputation, whatever it was. And Peter through the Spirit, I guess, knew they were lying to the church. And he confronted them. And he said, you're lying to the Holy Spirit, and that means you're lying to God. And when Ananias heard that, he fell to the ground, and he died. A swift physical death. Now, his wife, Sapphira, she didn't know that he had died. She presents the exact same lie, and Peter confronts her same thing, she drops to the ground and she dies a swift physical death. And it's recorded in there, it says that the others in the church felt great fear. I say rightly so. <laughs> I mean, that had to cause some fear. It caused me great fear when I read it. It, it certainly made me wanna know what to do or I, now I know what not to do. And I think they would have learned that. See, God could judge sin however he wants. But I do think he had reasons when he judged Ananias and Sapphira with this swift judgment. See, remember, they were in the very early church. It's the baby church. It was just getting its sea legs. And what they did was, was violating the sanctity of this, this community of Christians. And when he chose to deal with this sin swiftly and completely, because, and the reason he did that is because it was gonna have a negative impact on this early church. They were still figuring out how to do this. See, when we see a fellow Christian sinning in a way that doesn't lead to death, John instructs us to pray for them, and he says, pray with confidence. John goes on to say in verse 17 that all sin is wrongdoing, but not all sin leads to a swift death, like that of Ananias and Sapphira. And although a great deal of time and effort has been spent on this, trying to figure out what kind of sin is gonna cause the swift death, John says, I'm not talking about that one. 
I'm talking about sin that doesn't cause death. That's the kind we're supposed to pray for. And when we do so, we're demonstrating our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. By doing so, we're also exercising our faith in Jesus, and we're obeying the two-pronged command that we see in 1 John 3, 23. If you'll look at that on your verse sheet, it says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Now, I know it's clear as mud. Trust me, I understand. I've been wallowing in that mud for weeks, trying to figure out what to say about this. I know, and here's my advice for what it's worth. I, take it or leave it. I would rather err on the side of praying than not praying. I would rather go with what Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians chapter four, verse six. Do not be anxious about anything. Anything, like is it a sin that leads to death or not? But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. At the end of the day, I would rather be charged with praying for my brothers and sisters in Christ than not praying for them. I don't wanna let my lack of knowledge or understanding of God's word about what death, or what sin causes death and what one does it, paralyze me and cause me not to, sin, not to pray for those in sin. So I'm just gonna keep praying and let God sort that out. I, I feel like we've chased our tails and I hope that you don't feel like that. But if you do, you're in good company. Most of the theologians were chasing their tails through all of this as well. But I do think we have some things we can be completely sure of. First of all, that when we pray in God's will, he hears us, we know that. And we can know that praying God's, in God's will is not about satisfying our desires it's about aligning our will with God's purposes. That's what prayer is. That's when we become effective prayer warriors. Great prayer warriors. Now let's move on and read the next two verses, verse 18 and 19. Follow along. It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The third assurance that we have is the assurance of victory over sin. John goes on to say that anyone is born of God will not keep on sinning. Now what he's not saying is that we will be sinless. He's, he's saying that we're gonna sin less. We're gonna, we're gonna practice righteousness and not practice sinning. Here's the only way I could think of to explain it to you. I love golf and I play it a lot. So I frequently practice my golf swing. Now when I first started playing golf, it was about 35 years ago, I was self-taught. I had no idea at all what I was doing. But I kept on playing, swinging that golf club the wrong way every time, trying to make it work. Nothing really changed for me, I just kept doing it the wrong way. Then one day, a light bulb went off on my head. I should hire someone that knows how to play golf. So I did, and I took lessons from a golf pro that knew how to play golf. It was revolutionary. He taught me all the right things to do, and I started practicing every day. How do I hit it the right way? Now, I didn't always get it right. I, not at all. But I no longer used those old golf ways that I used before. I was trying and practicing all the new ways I had learned from the one who knew the game. 
and he had taught me what was right. Flash forward to today, I still know those principles, but no matter how hard I try, I can't always execute them consistently or, or perfectly. But I keep trying. You know, I have a saying when I had a bad golf shot, I always say that was a ripe shot, R-I-P-E. I say it was the right idea, poorly executed. <laughs> I know what to do. I just can't always do it right. But you know, that's the same thing as my spiritual walk. It's the same thing. In my early years, before I knew Christ, I just kept on sinning because I didn't really know the right way to do it. I didn't even know if I was sinning. And if I did, I really didn't care. I was busy building a testimony. I just kept on going. But after I, reject, after I accepted Christ, my sin was revealed to me because I was in the scriptures. And I knew what was wrong and I knew what I was doing wrong. And, and so I started practicing righteousness because that's what I saw in the Bible and that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't make a practice of sinning anymore. Now, many times, though, I've had the right idea and it's been poorly executed. But God knows my heart. He knows I love him and I want to please him. He knows that I don't always get it right. And he just brushes me off and he sends me on. And let's keep practicing. Using the new stuff you learn. Don't go back to the old ways. See, the other part of our victory from sin is that we are, if we're followers of Christ, that we have protection from the evil one. The evil one is Satan, it's the devil, the father of all lies. You can put whatever title you want on him. It's the same dude. He prowls around, and he's, he's like a playground bully, and he's going to constantly needle you, and he's going to try to make things difficult, and he's going to seek to devour you and destroy you, but guess what? He can't touch you. He is not the boss of you. John tells us that. He says he can't touch you. The Greek word for touch used in the original language means to grasp hold or to cling on. That's creepy. He can't do that. He can't do that, and John tells us that. He says when he says the evil one does not touch you, he's saying that the evil one cannot grasp hold of you and cling on to you. He could circle you all day long, but he can't devour you. Not at all. He may try to tempt us. He may try to trip us up because he knows our weaknesses probably better than we know our own weaknesses. But we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And with that, we'll be able to recognize when we're being tempted and we'll be given the power to resist those temptations. Now, John tells us that the evil one can't touch us, but we do know from Scripture there have been a few times that God allowed Satan to prowl just a little bit closer to a believer than normal. We know that in the, in the story of Job. That's a hard one to read. Satan got a little bit closer to him. And then it also happened in the New Testament to Peter. Look at Luke 22 on your verse sheet. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus allowed the evil one to prowl just a little bit closer to Peter. But this is the cool part. He didn't just allow that. He prayed for Peter. So Peter was completely equipped to deal with this encounter. Now, his, he didn't do it perfect, right? He had kind of a ripe shot here and there. He had the right idea. It was poorly executed. 
And even though his courage faltered, ultimately his faith did not fail. And the Bible records that he was restored and he became an effective servant in the kingdom of God. And we can be assured of this. The evil one may have power in this world, but Jesus gives us the power to resist and overcome that. He gives us what we need. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13 on your verse sheet. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We have everything we need to deal with the already defeated evil one. He's gonna prowl around us. And that power, that, that is not some big secret. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the word of God. So how do we do this? How do we use that power? We stay in God's word. Your Bible should be your number one bestseller, not resting on your dusty old bookshelves. It should be resting on the arm of your favorite chair. The pages should be worn out from you seeking God's will and learning how to resist sin in this world. As Christians living in the sinful world, we can be encouraged to know that the battle with sin is expected. I mean, it's not, it doesn't catch God off guard. The battle with sin is not only expected, it's winnable. We have the tools to, to beat it. It's already been beat. We just have to live like, we, like, like we're victorious. Jesus already did the work. And the battle with sin, praise God, is gonna come to an end. When we're with spending glory in, in glory with Jesus, we want to have the sinful self and the evil one. He'll be in his rightful place. It'll be amazing. Let's continue. I'm going to read uh, verse 20. This verse records one of my absolute favorite blessed assurances. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is a true God and eternal life. We belong to the one true God. What an amazing assurance. I mean, let that just soak in. How does that not cause you to be overwhelmed? It's not, he's not some distant God who's sitting up on his throne, keeping us at arm's length, just kind of being unconcerned about what's going on in your life. It's not, that's not what he's like at all. We belong to a God who is good, he's perfect, he loves us unconditionally, and he wants a relationship with each one of us. He wants to talk to you, he wants to teach you, he wants to guide you, he wants to bless you. He desires to see you grow in, in, in all his truths. That makes his heart happy when he sees you studying his word and implying truth in your life. And he's going to use whatever means he needs to to draw you closer to him. He loves you that much. You know, John uses the word true three times in this one verse. And the last time he uses it pertains to Jesus. And it's like he's trying to get in one more time. You can trust this. Jesus is the one true God. He's your eternal life. So to have a relationship with the one true God, you must believe in the name of his son, Jesus. You have to believe in everything about Jesus. When we have this personal relationship with Jesus, we can rest assured we have a relationship with the one true God. That should amaze you. 
You know, it's obvious to know that John and the early church was up against at this time. It was, they were up against false teachers that were questioning the true nature of Jesus. But guess what? So are we. It's not really any different. The easy ones are the, the, the false teachers that just outwardly deny Jesus completely. That's easy. We can all do that. But the really hard ones to discern are those that seem to affirm everything that the Bible says about Jesus. And then... They pick and choose little pieces of it, and they begin to discredit parts of Jesus' testimony. And as a believer, it's really hard sometimes to discern that. You know, there's, for example, one of them that I heard recently is that Jesus' birth wasn't a literal virgin birth. It It was a spiritual virgin birth. I don't even know what that means. I mean, I don't have enough discernment to understand that. It's ridiculous. But then in the same token, I heard that his resurrection wasn't a literal resurrection. It was a spiritual resurrection. That's as ridiculous as the other one. And and then we hear this all the time. Jesus just wants us to be happy. Oh, I don't know. No, that's as biblical as follow your heart. (laughs) And if you have any doubt and wonder, neither one of those are biblical. You're not gonna find those in the Bible. This list goes on and on. It's just this little truth. It's like, it's like 3% of his testimony. And they sneak it in there and they try to start changing your beliefs about him. John tells us that we've been given understanding by the Holy Spirit to understand the truths found in God's word. We have what we need. See, if we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal God's truth to us, he does that. But he also gives us discernment to see those little little bitty untruths or half-truths that we'll know when they're not saying the right thing. We'll be able to say, that's ridiculous. That is not true. See, the fact that the one true God desires to have a relationship with us, that should amaze us. That should cause us to respond by living this life that brings glory and honor to his name. And that's, that's how you respond to that kind of thing. I want to finish and read the last verse in 1 John 5. It almost felt like it was just stuck in here by accident. But I think there's a huge assurance in here as well. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. It's almost like John is writing the P.S. to his letter. He says, P.S., keep yourself from idols. Kind of reminds me of when my kids are leaving to go back to wherever they live and they head out the door. I'm like following them to the car. And just don't forget, and don't forget, and don't forget. And I'm just constantly reminding them one last little thing that I don't want them to forget. But he's doing the same thing when he closes his letter. He's going, remember, keep away from idols. He wants us to be assured that our God is worthy of our worship. Now, I think I should have better said this on here worthy of all of our worship. But this has already been printed, so I want you to take your pen and put a carrot top between of and our and write all in capital letters. Because he is worth, worthy of all of our worship. Sometimes when I'm preparing to teach, you know, I like to look at other translations other outside the ESV that I use, but occasionally I'll find a, a different translation that says it's just a little bit different and it makes it easier to understand. Now, I did this, and I thought it was very interesting. A couple of them, the King James and the Living Bible, actually ended this with amen. Well, that was kind of cool. It's like, it's like John was saying, so be it. I agree with everything that's been said here. 
But then the Living Bible goes a little step further. It not only says amen, it says, sincerely, John. Yeah. I think it should have said, love John, but sincerely works. We get the point. This translation of John 5, 21 leaves no doubt in your mind when it says, dear children, the Living Bible says, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Amen. Sincerely, John. Yeah. I mean, that's very clear, isn't it? Now we don't have to wonder, what is an idol? An idol is any substitute of of the real thing. It imitates truth, but it's not truth. It comes between God and us, and it robs him of our worship. It doesn't have to be a statue. It doesn't have to be made out of wood or stone or crystal or whatever it's made out of. It could be your job, your finances, your security, your family, your success, your body. We could go on and on here. If we think more of any of these things than we do of Christ, we're committing idolatry. And idolatry, I think, is the single greatest threat to your relationship with Christ. See, it was true in the early church, and it's still true today. They may have changed the names, but it's all the same. First century people worshiped the god Narcissus. We worship ourselves. We just jumped straight to the, to the chase. They worship Bacchus, the god of wine. We just get addicted to drugs and alcohol. They, they worship Apollo, the god of physical beauty. We worship our bodies. See, there's really nothing new under the sun. So when anybody tries to tell you that, the Bible is outdated, it's irrelevant. Just laugh. No, that's ridiculous. John is warning us against anything that would hinder our walk with Christ or slow maturity, or spiritual maturity. The best way to know if you have any idols in your life is to take a close look at your calendar. What are you committed to? Look at your to-do list. What are you committed to? Where is your attention focused? Where are you spending the majority of your money, your time, your energy? That's whatever that is, that's your God. And if it's not Christ, it will most definitely, you can be certain of this, will affect your relationship with the one true God. Now, John has come to the end of his first letter, and I think you would agree with me that this letter is filled with meat, potatoes, and dessert. I love food. This one was filled to the brim. It was rich. It was full. You know, earlier I told you about a few certainties I had I'd come to know over the years, especially this last year. There's one I didn't share in my opening and I want to share with you now. And that last certainty is not, certainly not the last, nor the least. It's the last, but it's not the least. It's that as wildly as uncertain it may seem at times since I said yes to Jesus, I can tell you with complete certainty, I would not want to do life any other way. Because when I said yes to Jesus, even in all that chaos and all the craziness that swirls around me, I have been blessed with spectacular blessings. And they are so numerous, I can't even count them. Saying yes to Christ doesn't mean life is gonna be easy, but it means that when the crazy's swirling around you, you find peace and the fullness of his joy. He doesn't always take you out of the craziness, he just teaches you how to rest in his strong arms 
and find his peace and his joy. My prayer for each of you is that if you've said yes to Christ, you're walking so closely to him that you are finding those spectacular blessings all throughout your life, that they're too numerous to count. And if you haven't yet placed your trust in Christ, my prayer is that he would gently, gently, gently prompt you to give him your heart so that you can live out the rest of your days experiencing peace and joy like you could never in this world. You won't be disappointed, and you can be certain of that. Please pray with me. Father, we are certain of so many things that we know we can count on you for. Father, you are, you are good. You love us. You, you want the very best for us. Lord, you've taught us so well. Lord, I pray that we take these truths and we go out in the world and we look different. That these words applied in our lives would, would cause us to glow and attract others to you, Father. Pray that we would live our lives saying not to us, not to us, but to you, O Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And it's in his precious precious name we pray. Amen.